From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made when a professional data scientist found herself frustrated by what she called doomsday claims about climate change, about sustainability, about the future of the human race. Hannah Ritchie is the lead researcher at an organization called Our World in Data. I first came across her work when I was looking for comparative data on COVID and pandemic outcomes across countries back in 2020. She became a worldwide authority on pandemic statistics, and two years later, she earned the title of Scotland's Youth Climate Champion. Richie's frustration with some of the climate action movement was not because she doesn't see climate change as a threat. She goes by the data, and the data is clear, of course, that climate, cha- climate change is very much a threat. But Richie sees a series of problems that pop up commonly. First, she sees bad data tossed around and not questioned, and once it's out of the gate, it is often used. She calls them zombie statistics. Second, she believes that the most doomy ideas get the most coverage, but they tend to breed nihilism, not action in people. Hannah Richie does not think children should be raised to think that we are all going to perish from climate change. And yet surveys show that a record number of people are reconsidering having kids at all, and many kids now feel anxiety about climate. Here's Richie explaining the premise of her new book in a recent conversation on the Plain English podcast with Derek Thompson. One of the barriers that, that I face and, and many other kind of really good scientists working on this face is that um, we often get poor claims, claims that have not come true in the past, thrown back at us. So when we're trying to say we really need to take climate change seriously, these are the potential impacts, we get thrown uh, claims thrown back at us of, yeah, yeah, people said that 30 years ago, and here's this claim that they said that didn't come true. And I think that's one of the big risks for me is that I think when we're asking people to act on climate and act on these environmental problems, they're acting on the basis that they trust the science. And we need to try to maintain that science over, this is you know decades-long journey for us to do this. We need to maintain maintain that trust over decades. And I think some of the really outlandish claims actually discredit us and make it very hard for us to, to maintain trust. I think there's two issues there. I think one is that on that side, it um, really polarizes people because these claims don't come true. On the other side, the really apocalyptic train uh, uh, claims also for some people that, that, that believe them then become quite paralyzed. It's Hannah Ritchie talking to Derek Thompson. Her book is called Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. One of the reasons that some on the political right picked it up was because the title seemed to indicate that climate change is not really happening or not really a threat or not the end of the world. They were disappointed to learn from Ritchie's book that, yes, it is happening and, yes, it is a big problem. But one of the reasons that I was drawn to it is because it is hopeful and prescriptive. And I see a lot of movements tackling big problems these days, but often they don't bring a lot of hope to the conversation. And it is hard to grow a movement without hope. Richie breaks her book down into sections on air, climate, food, for example. She tries to apply data to every section, understanding where we are now and what our options will be going forward. Now, critics have said she might be too optimistic, that some of her ideas ignore the powerful, moneyed interests that seek to prevent progress. Richie counters that humanity has made powerful strides on hard problems in many cases already. Extreme poverty has fallen dramatically around the world in the past century. Child mortality is down 90 percent in the past century. A hundred years ago, 12 percent of adults around the world were literate. Today, it's more than 86 percent. Vaccination levels against countless diseases have soared. That makes Hannah Ritchie an optimist. This hour, we've asked several guests to come in and talk about some of the themes particularly related to climate and some of the action items in the book. Let's talk about them with Sue Hugh Smith, the Monroe County Legislator in District Number 14, Adjunct Professor in Environmental Policy at local colleges, wears many, many hats that I never quite get enough correct. It's great to have you back here, <laughs> Great Sue. to see you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Abby McHugh Griff is Executive Director of the Climate Solutions Accelerator of the Genesee Finger Lakes region. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. And Kevin Schulte, CEO of GreenSpark Solar, welcome back to you as well. Thanks for having me. So do you agree with the premise of uh, of at least the, Hannah Ritchie's work that we heard in that first soundbite, that there are things that are inhibiting this movement from growing, but the work is vital and there has to be an incorporation of data and a realistic approach here? Any Anything that you disagree with there? Gosh, I mean, I, I, I've been looking at and thinking about and advocating for climate uh, movement for decades. Um that to me, we have been growing. The climate movement today is so different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So 
Um, and people are not uniform, and how people are going to respond and what messages motivate people uh, is going to be varied. There's no one silver bullet for this uh, solution. And, and I think the question fundamentally is, are you looking for a message that's going to motivate one person to change or that will shift systems to change? And without an active and vocal climate movement, the status quo will remain. I think that's what we've seen over human history. What changes systems is movement building. And that's not just like showing up and politely being like, hey, can we talk about this really big problem and that the system then responds rationally? If that was true in 1990, you know, two, when the first Earth Summit took place, the world would be like, oh, yeah, let's start, let's start shifting one or two percent of our energy needs every year. But that, that isn't what happened. It took a, a development of a political movement to cause governments and the policies that shape our economic decisions to start shifting. Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly take that point that it's one thing to talk about, are we trying to motivate individual action? It's another to say, how are we trying to change systems? And they're not the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're related, but they're not the same thing. Sure. But, mm -hmm. but changing systems is the key to the realm, I would think, or, 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 or systemic change, policy change is more the key to the realm than individual action. Is that fair? Hey, look, most of us want to turn on, flip the lights on, have them come on affordably and reliably. Most people don't really care how that electricity is being generated. And to a large extent, they, they shouldn't have to care. Uh, we should be having in place systems that are going to be healthful and affordable and reliable, and, and we can achieve that. Abby, what did you make of um, some of the arguments in the premise of Richie's work here? I deeply appreciated her book, uh, just the hopefulness that it brings and the hope that is based on data. Uh, I think she does a good job of pointing out that hope also needs to be paired with action, right? You can be hopeful all day long, and that's not going to get us out of this mess. And, um, you know, that she does ground it in data and shows the progress that we have already been making that really doesn't get enough press. Um, and, and, you know, your common, you know, everyday person on the street just probably doesn't realize the wonderful changes that are already happening. So, you know, she, she pointed to three true statements. Uh, you know, one, things are awful. Two, things are better than they were. And three, things can be improved. And those are all true. So we have to, like, sit with all of those and wrestle with all of those at the same time. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I drew some of the data that she's collected on how much progress has been made in the past century. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the headlines do focus on the the first part, the first truism, which is things are awful. That gets a lot of the play today. But I think Hannah Ritchie is reminding us we've we've made big strides. It's not like we haven't worked hard on hard problems before. So that is a hopeful thing to me. What I want to ask you, Abby, is a little bit about some of what she has said about kids and anxiety and hope for the future. First time I saw her after the, the pandemic stuff was last April when she, her TED Talk came out. And she cited data that um, a survey across continents of more than 10,000 people, 39% of people in this survey were saying that they would reconsider having kids because of climatological and future threats to humanity. And she also talked about the levels of anxiety that kids feel when they talk about things like kids are asked about statements like, do you... See, the, your future is a good one. or And a lot of kids are saying, like, I think we're going to perish to climate change. And Hannah Ritchie is saying, like, that's not a healthy dynamic. That's not good. First time you were on this program, we talked about being a parent. I think about my son. He's 11. I think it's okay to talk about hard issues in a realistic ways that doesn't mask them from kids, knowing that at times it might be a little hard to work through. So I don't know what the line is. I would what I would want to ask Connor Richie is, is any anxiety bad? Because I don't want kids to feel anxiety all the time. I don't want to take away their childhood. I don't want to take away their hope. But I feel some anxiety for the future if we don't do better. And I think that's natural and important, right? That what spurs action. No? I uh, so, you know, where's the line between concern and anxiety? And, you know, I'm not a medical health professional, so, right, you know, right. I can't speak to that directly. But, you know, as a parent, we're all parents here. Um, you know, I've been talking to my kids since they were, I mean, they, Sue will remember, they <laughs> 
came yes. to before they could speak, before they could talk, were, were coming to these meetings with me. And I think that c- combining knowledge of the issues with concrete opportunities for action is where I see us being able to help young people to not get mired in the doom and gloom, to know what they're facing, to understand the real challenges, to understand the causes of this um, crisis, but to know what it means to be a force for good in, in creating a better future. That that That's really well said. And, and I actually i am thinking, listening to Abby's answer, thinking that maybe anxiety is not the same as concern. Mm-hmm. We should feel concern. Deep concern. Okay, deep concern. <laughs> And as a spur to action, but too much anxiety can lead to paralyzation or or nihilism, and that's not healthy, right? That's I think that's where Richie sees the tipping point. That if you're all doom and gloom and you don't acknowledge progress and you and you pick the worst of the possible data and you you live with that all the time, you're probably going to feel paralyzed. Well, and one thing that she points out in the book is that many people don't understand what effective solutions look like. So I, I all all the time, way too often. I'll mention to someone what I do for a living, and they will respond with, oh, well, I recycle. And it's and she specifically mentions this in yeah, the book, yeah. that the focus on recycling, uh, anytime anyone thinks about the environment and doing good for the environment, their brain goes to recycling, which we've been, you know, I mean, there's a reason for that, right? We have been taught that, and, and that has been instilled at us as our individual responsibility to put the thing in the right bin. And And as she points out, like, yes, please, recycle. Good idea. But understand that in the scheme of things, that is very minor impact compared to other things that you can do. So we need to make sure that people really understand where their emissions are primarily coming from and what the corresponding solutions are. I'm so glad Abby brings this up. One of the great themes of this book, at least for me as a reader, is how much a certain message about a certain thing, recycling vis-a-vis emissions and bigger issues, food Where's the food traveling from versus how is it farmed and grown and what are you actually eating? You know, are you eating? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But there's a dissonance between where a lot of the focus and attention goes versus what are the actual bigger impacts. And it's really helpful to clarify all that. Kevin Schulte, how did you see some of this? I I think as much about this dialogue as my now 28 years in this crisis, involved in this crisis, that we're in a transitioning phase, right? Which is 28 years ago, we didn't have products. Mm -hmm. We didn't have technology. We didn't have policy. We didn't have markets to, to cure really any of this. And as we have evolved and, and carried on over the last 30 years, 28 years, We've gotten some of those things, right? Not in every space and not in every way. And so as you go through that span of time and, and, and you talk about the data, right? There are certain things that are wildly successful in the decarbonization movement in energy and agriculture in many, many places. And we need to continue that. But what has to happen now in the transition to me that's most exciting is how do we start to alter what are the incumbencies and what are the new incumbencies in 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 this movement so you think about the incumbencies in my business which is electricity is the utility right and how do we alter that dynamic so that either they are part of decarbonization or get out of the way and power concedes nothing without a struggle, said someone much smarter than me. Yeah, right. uh, exactly. <laughs> and so we think about the same things as, as you look at, you know, like the Woody Harrelson documentary on regenerative agriculture. And it's like, how do we transit? We know how to do agriculture in a carbon positive way, but most of our agriculture is not done in a regenerative and carbon positive way. So how do, how do we switch that now? And not only do we know it, but we also know it's it's more cost effective and more productive than our current versions of agriculture. So what are the how do we transition those incumbent thought processes to what has to become the new incumbency so that when when a homeowner, you know, when a when a young person that we have a woman that works for us, Stephanie Chen, who when she started working for us, didn't know 
anything about solar. And her and her husband bought their first house and their first decision was, I'm going to go solar. And so when you think about how do we alter larger, systemically alter society's thought process to, I bought my home, my next capital investment should be clean heat or solar or an electric vehicle or any of these carbon uh, reducing choices that people can make. That's the transition that I feel like we're in now and is the most important conversation every day at a place like Greenspark where I work, which is how do we how do we create household and systemic thoughts to be, I'm going to go green. And I think rightly the data points to that's happening faster and faster in the places where the economics support the transition. I want to also ask you about some of the criticism I've heard of this book. Um, one of the pieces of criticism I've read said that, um, well, you know, when she's critical of a movement, she's too taken in by the cartoonish caricature versions of a movement, and every movement has edges and extremes, and people who will take one argument as far as it can go or over the edge, and we should stick to the core of the movement and what's trying to be accomplished. And an example is there was a lot of attention in the Louvre when, I, I don't know, two climate protesters threw pumpkin soup on the Mona Lisa, which was in my view, a really counterproductive way to advocate for climate change. But that was two people. It got attention around the world. And so the, some of the criticism is, well, yeah, she's talking about like these zombie statistics or this data that doesn't match up. I think she would say, Kevin, no, we have to make sure that we get it right because if, if stuff is getting headlines that this is going to happen by this date or this is going to happen by that date and it's not happening, then people are turning the whole movement off. Do you see people turning off, turning off to this? I don't think our industry and our activism is showing the success well enough. Like in New York State, as a for instance, we are ahead of the governor's target for solar energy, right? That That is of some pride to myself, but like causing them to move the targets to bigger numbers, right? So like, but no one's talking about that. Well, how come I didn't know that? Exactly. <laughs> so exactly my point. And so it's like we, we, we have and, and there are many cases of that. I speak to one that obviously I'm I'm closest to, but like there are many cases where that there are also cases where that's not not the reality. We were in a meeting, I think the three of us were in a meeting not that long ago where I got into an argument over clean heat and whether or not it was ready or not. Technologically it is economic clean heat? Yes. Yeah, so okay. electrifying your heat with a heat pump rather than fossil fuel, natural gas, or propane, or heating oil, right? And so, you know, is that an economically viable technology in New York State in 2024? And the question is, it's real close. You know, the answer is it's real close. It's not cheaper, but it's not obnoxiously more expensive when you consider all the potential incentives. And and that was the argument, that it felt, it felt to this person that it was obnoxiously more expensive but the bottom line is is closer than most people will realize. Well, so Kevin cited some points that he wishes are getting more attention that provide, I think, some progress, some momentum, some optimism, yes, a, a, a cure, a balm against nihilism or paralysis. What what is what's on the list for you that you say this should be getting more attention? This is, I mean, it's not everything, but it is something that is going in the right direction. I mean, I think it's a mixed bag. The three points that Abby made, right? The climate science um, has not been wrong, except in one way. The impacts are unfolding faster and faster than they were ever predicted. Right? Every time we get a new update, it's like, oh, well, the science thought that that would happen in 20, you know, just picking a number, 2050, but now it's happening. We think it'll happen in 2040. Or, you know, the, so the Earth's climate system is more sensitive than we thought. Impacts are occurring faster than we thought. At the same time, yes, we are responding. And, and capitalism, investments, the way we're structuring uh, you know, large decisions is bending the cost curves and making more and more realistic those changes, right? We've had more investment in renewable worldwide renewable technologies last year, right, than, than anything else. So we're, we're beginning to see that impact. So more than one thing is true at the same time. And for me, the challenge is continuing to push 
that those changes have to come faster. The investments in the newer, cleaner technologies, the deployment of those newer systems has to come faster. We can do it, but not without intentionality. What gives, uh, what, what do you wish we were at least talking about more that would give people a sense that, hey, we can do some things. Look what's already happening. So I would just go for, you know, I'm going to like to zoom out a bit. The fact that a better future is possible, you know, just period, right? We are not doomed to everything falling apart, that we we have choices to make that lead us down different paths. And in fact, one of those paths can be a more equitable, healthier, um, and just, you know, cleaner future in, in a number of different ways. And so the piece of that that I would draw out is specifically how implementing climate solutions, implementing solutions to the other environmental challenges that she talks about in her book, because I think it is important Agreed. that we not only talk about climate change. Um, implementing these solutions, considering ourselves as part of nature rather than separate from or superior to it, mm -hmm. uh, can lead us to make choices and decisions that will indeed improve our health, economic opportunity, um, just quality of life. So I worry about the extent to we th that we think about these issues as isolated rather than understanding that, you know, collectively it is in our best interest to work together to solve these shared concerns. I found myself thinking that every section of the book was a climate change section because everything <laughs> feels interconnected in that sure, way. Sure, absolutely. Um, before I get into one of the separate sections there. I do want to read a, a page that included some data that even for me was a little eye-popping. So Hannah Ritchie writes the following. She says, I have a habit of underestimating how quickly things can change. Most of us have been too pessimistic about renewable energy in the past, even the experts. Part of the reason I thought that a two degrees Celsius, uh, part of the reason I thought two degrees Celsius was so far out of reach, and we're talking about future warming and I think we all know what we're talking about there. So part of the reason I thought it was so out of reach was that I couldn't see how low carbon energy could grow quickly enough. Historically, energy transitions have been very slow. The scientist Vaclav Semmel has shown this many times in his work, remaking energy systems and shifting from one source to another, whether it was from wood to coal or coal to oil, happened over many decades, if not longer. And coal, oil, and gas were just so much cheaper than solar or wind, especially with larger fossil fuel subsidies. So let's go back to 2009. You're the prime minister of a low-income country, and you want to build a new power plant. One quarter of the population does not have access to electricity at all. Many of those that, that do can only afford to consume very small amounts. Hundreds of millions live in energy poverty. It is your job as the leader to improve the lives of the people in your country. So you have to decide what type of power plant to install. Obviously, cost is a big factor. We're going to compare electricity sources based on a metric called the levelized cost of energy. You can think about ELCO, L-C-O-E, as the answer to the question, what would be the minimum price that my customers would need to pay so that the power plant would break even over its lifetime? This includes the cost of building the plant itself, as well as the running costs for the fuel and operations. Here are your options and how much each will cost. This is 2009 prices. Number one, solar voltaic, $359. Number two, solar thermal, $168. Number three, onshore wind, $135. Number four, nuclear, $123. Number five, coal, $111. Number six, gas, $83. She writes, what are you going to pick? If you're worried about climate change, you'd want to pick solar, wind, or nuclear. But solar is more than three times the cost of coal in 2009. So now we skip ahead just 10 years, 2019. Here are the prices now. Nuclear, $155. It was $123. Solar thermal, $141. It was $168. Coal, $109. It was $111. Gas, $56. It was $83. Onshore wind, $41. It was, it was 10 years ago, 135 and solar voltaic, $40. It was 359 one-ninth the cost. In a decade, solar was 
almost 10 times cheaper. So you got to make these decisions. And what she's pointing out here is if you only think about right now and you're not really appreciating how fast things are moving and how much better the tech is getting and just the cost, just the cost, then you missed it. Then you built gas, then you built coal. And a lot of countries did in 2009 or 2008 or 2010. But that, the numbers, I don't know, you've, you've tried to convince me over the years that that's where we were going. And look, so at some point we got there, Kevin Schulte. I don't know where we're going now, but that's pretty good. It's, it's remarkable, right? It is remarkable that we sit in Rochester, New York, and the cheapest form for you, a way for anyone to get their electricity is solar. You know, even Sue and I shared a proposal earlier today, and it's not free, but it is cheaper than paying the utility bill, right? And that's in a muni- that's in a government setting. So when you when you look at the market now, um, you look at it's it's all of the facets, and and I and I appreciate Sue's earlier comment on systems. Market is a system, right? Mm-hmm. So financing tools, technological gains, because it's not just that, well, the solar panels are producing more. No, 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 no. The manufacturing advancements, right? All of that, you know, that's where you start to get it. And, right, let's remember something about this movement. The fastest growing job sectors in the United States right now are wind and solar technicians and, and construction jobs. The fastest two job growing job sectors. So it's not just this, but it's also the replacement of the economic replacement and displacement of former fossil fuel workers now working in the renewable space. Families of coal miners in West Virginia now transitioning their family to be solar. There's a movement in West Virginia called Solar Miners because they're, they're transitioning into this thing. So all of those things contribute to an economic system where we're changing from energy of the past to energy of the future, and energy of the future has no carbon. Uh, Abby, how did you feel about those numbers? That, that, I thought that was really eye-opening to see the change in a decade. Makes you feel hopeful, huh? Makes you. I'm, I'm going to think about 2029, 2039. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are we looking at there? Well, and so I would say, you know, th- at this point, this transition is well underway. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything's going to stop it because the economics are just in the favor of clean energy. Where I do worry, and 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 I think in the book, you know, if I were to criticize the book, I've got a few. Um, but one thing that is not inevitable at this point is, will this be an equitable transition? Will everyone have equal access to these technologies and job opportunities? And so I think that's where I'm very interested in locally kind of centering our conversation is how do we make sure this is an equitable transition and no one gets left behind? And that really, that should be our next conversation right here. And we should spend an hour on that, that subject alone. I don't want to, I don't want to slough that off because um, what Abby's talking about there isn't a soundbite. It's, it's what she does, and I don't want. But I'm glad you bring that up. I appreciate that. Um, are, are you looking at this, those numbers, and thinking policy works? You know, the uh, the the is it is it the magic of the market, Sue? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to make you laugh. No. Uh, wh- what is driving this change the most, and where do we need to go to make sure 2029, 2039? are an even better example of where we, we want those curves. No, I mean, it, it is absolutely exciting and encouraging. And yes, policy is related to markets. These are not these are not separate things, right? The reason we, ha- we have markets are they're structured by governments. And the reason why we're seeing the economic shifts is because the signals for investment have shifted, right? Um, that's all encouraging. And the question is not, will it continue? I think it will. The question is, how fast can we make it go? If you really want to solve the climate question, meaning keeping warming to a less bad level, later is too late. So we need to accelerate. We need to keep moving, moving, moving. And policy can be the tool to help us get there. And we also need policy makers who are willing to look at that reality and who are willing to push back against the forces that are very strong that want to maintain current ways of doing things, right? So in the conversation, you know, Kevin's talking about, it's not all, it can't all be about individual choice. Like, so long as we keep thinking that way, you talk to someone and they're like, oh, I recycle. It's much more than what I individually can accomplish. It's important what I can individually do. 
But my individual choices are being shaped by other things, right? Most people are choosing gas because they're not paying to hook the main, the gas main up to their house. All the other rate payers have been paying for that. And so there's a direct subsidy that the homeowner isn't even aware of that's causing them to make a choice that isn't in our long-term best interest, right? And that means the better choice seems more expensive only because these other costs aren't being included. It's like a free giveaway. Well, can I just add Mm -hmm. one thing? And what's so interesting, particular here in New York State, is the rate base flatlines the cost of gas infrastructure, right? Which we're doing. We're, there are some movements to slow that down. Yeah. But in the renewable sector, if you go with solar on your bill, you have to pay a charge called the Customer Benefit Charge (CBC), mm-hmm. which is intended for that solar customer to pay back the system costs that allow them to go solar, which means the fossil fuel is advantaged over the new clean energy because of its incumbency. So that's when we talk about incumbencies. Mm-hmm. Because gas has been paying paid by the rate base for 100 years, we don't care. Solar comes online, they better pay their fair share. And so we're actually disadvantaged in that conversation and still cheaper then going in that direction. A little bit of context. Patrick writes in to say, um, can we get a little more context behind the numbers? So with solar dropping from $360 to 40 in 10 years, what exactly is that number? Kevin, um, we're, we're talking about the cost of of the, the manufacturer to begin with. I yeah, think. so levelized cost of energy for a um, community solar farm in New York State right now is anywhere between 5 and 20% cheaper than paying your RG&E bill, right? So at the solar scale of solar I build, whether it's at your home or in the community solar setting, five to 20% cheaper than paying your electricity bill. So that electricity bill that you're paying is the sum of nuclear and gas and, hyd- and the 26% hydroelectric in New York State, um, which functionally makes our, our energy mix. Yeah, and Patrick, just think of it this way. It's the overall cost that will help us determine what is the cheapest if we're just looking at the numbers the cost what's the cheapest form of energy and in the in the aughts in the late 2000s it was still going to be the fossil fuels it is not anymore and yeah. it hasn't been anymore for several years now and it's only going more in that direction uh, you know absent a massive subsidy program which you know congress is capable of anything but um it, it, it the point there patrick is there was a lot of talk for years about, well, you know, renewables, but the costs have got to come down. And, you know, think about the first computer that you bought. What did it cost? How bulky and big and clunky was it? Now think about what you pay. This has happened in the tech sector. It's happened in renewable. It's not just a fantasy. It's data. Look, it's te- Texas cheaper. isn't bringing all this wind online because they've experienced a a moral shift <laughs> They're bringing us 20% wind, I think, at this point, because it's cheap. Yeah. It's a better economic deal. Um, Dallas is saying, I saw a headline saying solar panels are 44% less in China. Is that true? I don't know. It's functionally impossible to buy a Chinese manufactured solar panel because of tariff issues in the United States anymore. So it's tough. But yes, because of the Chinese willingness to accept polysilicon from any source and for a number of other reasons, it is cheaper to go solar in China than it is here. And thank goodness, because with the industrialization rates in China, if they were to burn coal, which they had previously been doing, to power their industrial advances, that would be the biggest problem. China, India, and Africa burning coal would be the biggest problem in the climate movement that we've ever seen. So the fact that it is cheaper there is like, Thank goodness. Um, and the uh, separate email asking, you know, are you going to talk about animal agriculture? The book does, in fact. And it's interesting. I learned a, a lot in this book. And I'm going to play another piece of Hannah Ritchie talking about the perception versus reality. So one of the perceptions is if you want to eat cleaner, shop local. 
and she talks about having spoken to a college professor who said, I'm eating local lamb, <laughs> locally raised lamb, so it's green. It's better for the environment. And um, when it comes to uh, what actually matters, she said that the, the distance that your food travels does matter. It's about 5% of the impact that you could calculate in total of its climatological or environmental impact, 5%. So it's a factor. It's not the big one. The big one is what exactly are you eating and how was it raised? How was it grown? It's a third clip here. I think we, I think we got it. Let's, let's listen because in particular, this is Hannah Ritchie talking to Derek Thompson on the Plain English podcast about how we can think a little bit differently about the food we eat. How it is produced matters the most and, and how far it's traveled to reach you for most foods has a very, very little impact. And there we can think about the the rankings of different foods from kind of worst to best. So if we just look generally at foods, um, typically the general recommendation is that meat and dairy has a much higher carbon footprint than plant-based foods. That's the kind of general concept. So if you want to reduce the carbon footprint of your diet, eat less meat and dairy. That's the probably the biggest thing you can do. But within meat and meat in particular, there are different breakdowns. And a lot, it typically goes from the bigger the animal, the worse, to the smallest animal, the best. So you kind of beef is the worst, followed by lamb, followed by pork, followed by chicken, and then fish. So it goes from large animal to, to small animal. So that means two things. One, the biggest thing you can do is to reduce the amount of meat you're eating. But the second thing you can do if you don't want to reduce your meat consumption or can't reduce your meat consumption is to switch. So if you switch from beef to lamb, uh, from beef to chicken, you will still significantly reduce your carbon footprint. And getting specific, 100 grams of beef produces 50 kilograms of carbon emissions. So 100 grams of beef produces 50 kilograms of carbon emission. 100 grams of chicken produces 6 kilograms of carbon emissions. And the land use... To produce half a pound of steak requires 23 times more land than it takes to produce half a pound of chicken, which is so disappointing for people who love steak. That's tough. But it's a bottom line. You can eat chicken for eight straight days at least and still not cause the environmental impact of eating steak for one day. And when it comes to the amount of food we're making, by the way, we're currently producing enough food, according to her data, to allow every person on earth to have 5,000 calories a day. We waste a ton of food. Mm -hmm. We are inefficiently distributing food, but we are not incapable of feeding people. We are not incapable of solving this problem. So H Hannah Rich is a vegan, but she also says, you know, if, if you can't or don't want to or won't, <laughs> you can still think incrementally and it would matter. So, um, do you want to add to that? I mean, uh, is there a policy that 5,000 calories a day when I read that I was going 5,000 calories a day per person right now? Like what is what policies are we doing here? Like we are wasting a ton. This is extremely inefficient. It is extremely inefficient. There are people all over the world who don't have enough to eat, including in our own communities. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, does this give you less hope or more this kind of stuff? Well, I think, you know, she points to this over and over again in the book as a solution to multiple problems. Yeah, right. You know, deforestation, yep. water pollution, a, a lot of different things. So, um, you know, in terms of people who are looking for concrete things that they can do now, today, with, you know, no major upfront costs, eating less meat is a really significant one. Um, so I think it's just important to, you know, make that extremely clear to people. I would also say... Um, you know, thinking about the other benefits for our community, and she does explore this a little in terms of transportation, that yes, from an environmental standpoint, getting your food from far, 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 far away isn't the biggest impact, but you might have other reasons for wanting to eat local, for example, just to support the local food system and local farmers, right? So, so there's complexity and nuance here, of course, that's important to understand and think about what are the values that are driving your own personal decision-making on these issues. I was a little less compelled by the... She, she doesn't say that local shopping doesn't matter. She's saying it's probably overplayed. And the data probably supports that. I still came away from this book thinking, I'm shopping local. Right it's, a, yeah. it's overplayed from a carbon perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Right? I, I would just like to add that the conversation we just had about the cost of energy coming down so dramatically, 
I think the learnings that are out there related to regenerative agriculture put those carbon numbers in a similar spiral downward over the next decade if the ag system were willing to adopt practices that were more carbon ethical, for, for lack of a better term, but more more less carbon intensive. Because there's so many things the way that farmers can work with, whether they are raising livestock or vegetables or fruit or whatever, that are just better from a carbon perspective. Regenerative agriculture has seven times the potential in carbon sequestration that a solar panel does for the same footprint. Seven times. And so like this is a really important transition that has to be made as well. And big ag is another very large incumbency that does not care about carbon. And they're probably the most likely to be negatively impacted. And those measurements of, you know, calories produced is not the same as necessarily um, calories accessed. A lot of those calories are wasted going to animals, you know, so we could be much more efficient and use much less land and feed people well um, by shifting to regenerative uh, processes, by shifting diets. Do you want to add to that, Abby? I think it's just important to keep in mind that farmers are not the enemy here, right? Right. For sure. Farmers are are our primary stewards of the land in many, many cases, but they're working within this system that is set up to, you know, drive harmful practices. So so we need to think about this from a policy perspective and need to really think of farmers as allies in this and not, you know, in any case, demonize them. Yeah, and and much like other areas, to Abby's point, like the generational change that's occurred in agriculture has been out of sight for most people, right? So, you know, when my mom was growing up on a farm in Iowa, 80% of the food people ate was farmed in Iowa. And today it's like... Less than ten percent, you know. Um, they're twenty percent of Americans farms now. It's like one percent of farmer of people are farmers, and that has largely been done because policies drove the um, need to be efficient in a way that caused the need for large production, for the production of grains that could be stored. And so there are policies behind the development of, of those systems. And so policies are likely to shape those, those um, the movement away from the current systems. And the farmers and the people who are impacted by those changes need to be supported through those transitions. This- uh, do you want to jump? Yeah, go ahead, Abby. One last point about no, the, the 5,000 calories produced you know, now, and this is globally, not just in the United States, that so we've got more than enough food being produced. This, this is important because it pushes back on the pretty common uh, argument you hear about population and mm-hmm. that we need to control population numbers and that, you know, and then that can very quickly go to some some terribly racist policies that, you know, have historically happened. So, um just to keep in mind that we do have, in fact, enough, the means already to feed people and as con- population continues to grow, we'll continue to have enough food. We just need to be smart about how we are using those calories we're producing and distributing. Well, some of this brings me back to a conversation that Kevin Schulte and I had probably a couple of years ago on this program about the pragmatism of approaching people, especially in areas where um, the maps are more red as opposed to blue. We are a very polarized country, and the the map, you know, rural America is pretty right leaning. Uh, that's not a secret. The problem, I think, when it comes to different actions that people will take, whether it's calling Green Spark or making a change or or even asking for a policy change, sent talking to a lawmaker, being open to. I had a conversation recently with a, a friend who lives in rural area about buying a fully electric car. And he said, I, I don't trust it. I don't trust it yet. And I said, well, like, what don't you trust? He's like, well, I don't trust that you're going to be able to get where you need to go. I said, well, that's range anxiety. Like, that's very normal. Like, what else? And he's like, well, I don't trust that, like, I don't trust the people behind it. Mm-hmm. And, then it was, and then it became a political thing. So there's a lot of, I, I think there's a lot of barriers to entry if there's a tinge of politics. I think what I remember you saying is, when you talk to people about solar, you throw out all the moral stuff and you basically say, this is going to save you money. Absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about... Not that you don't care about the moral stuff. Uh, exactly. And and 
Sue was on the program. I don't remember if Abby was here. You might have been on the phone that day when we talked about it. But the idea that a farmer or a rural resident is going to make the change to solar or clean energy because – regenerative agriculture. Or regenerative agriculture because um, someone tells them to is right. likely wrong. Right. They have to be presented with – uh, and any person has to be presented with why am I doing this and what is the opportunity? And so for populations of people that we don't think of as traditionally understanding or um, or or moving towards better climate practices, right, we have to talk about the technologies and opportunities that make economic sense for them. And there are a lot of those out there. Not every solution is out there. Right, that that is economic at this point, but there are many economic, and that to me has a huge individual effect. Whereas the movement, right, has a huge systemic effect. Right, that there are policies and opportunities in regenerative agriculture or clean heat or clean energy available is because of the political motion, but the consumer decisions which we need. We need those. In, we need individual business owners willing to make these changes, and farmers, and homeowners, et cetera, and government officials, um, and local government officials. When all of those things are working together, that's when real progress is starting to happen. And that's one of the reasons, Abby. I, I actually felt hopeful from this book is the "what's in it for me" aspect of it. I don't say that flippantly. I'm, I don't mean to say that unkindly. Just when people say, "Is it better for me? Is it better for my family? Is it better for our household?" A lot of the data says if it didn't used to be, it actually is now. Like we've hit that point in a lot of this. To Kevin's point, maybe even more in the future, but we're there with a lot of this. Um, but is there still that that barrier on politics to get you know more buy-in? Do you see that? I mean, and what do you do about that? I mean, political divide is certainly a thing in our country. <laughs> like, I mean, I think we all know that, and it is a barrier to progress for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I'm I'm just deep in my heart, you know, remain hopeful and am a believer that people recognize that we all need clean air, clean water, you know, a safe and prosperous future for our children. Like, um, so I think there are ways to have these conversations. And, and, you know, Kevin points to, you know, just the economic perspective as one of those ways where we it, it does not need to be. A, an identity politics thing. Um, and to the extent that we can get past that sooner rather than later, I think it will be to everyone's benefit. Well, I think it's been intentionally made an identity right. politics yes. thing you. because if you ask people do they want clean air and clean water, the answer is yes, universally. Everybody wants that. And when you understand that you're going to get more of those things, the cleaner the energy is that we are producing and using, then it's a no-brainer that that's what we should switch to, right? So that's that's been intentional. And yet, Time and again, whether it's my cousin in Kansas who's vegan because his health survival depended upon getting moving away from meat and dairy, or whether it's watch Soil Carbon Cowboys and the the farmers in that um, YouTube film documentary aren't switching to is that what it's called? Agriculture, what's one? <laughs> because because they want to save the climate is because that land is absorbing water better. It's responding to the shocks of the system, the weather conditions better. It's easier for them to do their work. It's more economical. It saved his, his farm. And, and when those farmers talk to other farmers, that's how that information is going to spread and be adopted, not from, from me or from any policy person saying, oh, yeah, you definitely should do this, right? They need to, to see it and understand why it's beneficial to them. Two comments from listeners. David writes to say, we're producing so many calories, but we desperately need to reduce our land use now. Well, a point well taken, and land use is definitely part of this book, David. Um, and Connie says, uh, Evan, you can talk about food all you want, but we're a few decades away, as I understand it, from not being able to grow food at all anymore. This is an important point that Hannah Ritchie actually talked about, and it's, I was, we weren't going to play it, but thank you, Connie. This is the last clip that I have from Hannah Ritchie talking to Derek Thompson about... Uh, the reality or the myth that we're a few decades away from no food being able to be produced in in the world anymore. Yeah, they're nonsense. And I think you can you can even tell that from the range of the numbers there. Like one is thirty, one is sixty. There's a lot of claims that's a hundred. I mean, those are massive differences. And if that claim is 
that claim is true, we should really get a grip on what number is it? Is it 30 years or is it 100 years? I think the 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 problem there is that um, there's really no scientific basis for these claims. Now, that's not to say that soil degradation isn't happening and isn't a big risk to our food systems. There are. Um, but the, the, the reality is that you cannot distill the world's entire agricultural system into like a single number. I mean, framing it in that way means you're saying that at exactly the same time, every single soil in the world will be able to stop producing food. And that's just not the reality. So, Connie, I hope that helps. Again, that's Hannah Ritchie, the author of Not the End of the World. She is a data scientist, and we've been talking about her new book. Um, I appreciate that. The one thing that I wish I would have heard her say or I wish I would have seen the book explore is, are we going in that direction in the next 100 years? What does, does the data say we can't pinpoint a year, but if we don't make changes? I mean, I still feel like it's a problem, and I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about future food production absent better policy change practices and a much more action-oriented plan to deal with agriculture here and around the world but anyway you're looking at me funny over there we are really smart people mm -hmm. like really smart like there's a my office right is right in front of an intergrow factory right which is agriculture of the future on some levels where they have 150 acres of greenhouses growing tomatoes 12 months a year, right? Like, I'm not saying everything is headed into a greenhouse, but like, we're really smart people and we have solutions that work. Now, if Intergrow would have done that with decarbonized energy, I'd be much more in support of it. But they are growing organic tomatoes in, you know, near Rochester, New York, 12 months of the year. Like, we have solutions out there that work. And yeah. And I would just say, Connie, don't let your kids think that we're 30 years away from no food for anybody. We can do this. And our guests have done such a good job in the 10 years that I've hosted this program of helping us see how they can get involved. Abby, real quick, how can people reach you and get more involved? ClimateGFL.org. We're looking for volunteers all the time, so hope to see people. ClimateGFL.org. And Sue, it's great to talk to you. Thank you. I, I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks, Sue. Sue Hugh-Smith, uh, I'm under county legislator among many other hats. Thank you for being here. Abby McHugh Griffa, um, thank you for the expertise and the time. We always appreciate it. And Kevin Schulte, they'll find you at Greenspark where? Greensparksolar.com. Are you still an underwriter for WXXI? I believe so. Okay, we should say that. I don't I don't even think about these things, but to be fair, we should say that. It's just a thing. All right. The book's called Not the End of the World by Hannah Ritchie. Great discussion. Thanks from the whole team for listening. We're back with you tomorrow on Member Supported Public Radio.